This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, October the 14th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go! Coming up on the show today, the news panel assembles to discuss the continuing fallout of the Hockey Canada scandal. We'll also reflect on the work ahead for Alberta's new premier, Danielle Smith. And later in the show, we'll take a closer look at the importance of local TV and film production in building a robust industry. According to the Emergencies Act is underway. Testimony begins today. Let's hear some sound from yesterday's opening remarks. Commissioner Paul Goulot hopes the whole process will be centered around learning. Uncovering the truth is an importer that impact the life lives of Canadians, the public has a right to know what has happened. But inquiries are also forward-looking. They seek not only to understand what has occurred in the past, but also to learn from those experiences and to make recommendations for the future. Hulot says this process is ambitious. At first glance, that may seem like a great deal of time. In reality, our time is very limited given the breadth of the issues that have to be covered. This commission will need to hear from dozens of witnesses and examine thousands of documents. Our timelines are tight and there's little room for error. Rouleau reflected further on the tight timeline. He acknowledged the inquiry will come with challenges. Discharging my mandate is not an easy task. The commission has faced many challenges in reaching this point and will face further challenges as the inquiry proceeds. The biggest challenge has been time. As mentioned, testimony begins today, and we'll be sharing as much sound as we can with you when we're back on Monday, and we'll keep doing so, so long as that sound's available for you. It's a public inquiry. You're the public. You deserve to know. Let's shift over to a different story involving federal politicians. With employment insurance premiums set to rise in the new year, both workers and employers are calling on the federal government to step in and eliminate debt accrued by the program during the pandemic. Karen Rebo has the details. The Office of the Chief Actuary says the EI program had accumulated nearly $26 billion of debt by the end of 2021, due in large part to the benefits offered to a staggering number of Canadians who were unemployed during the pandemic and to others who met more relaxed eligibility rules. Since then, the labour market has bounced back and temporary changes to the EI program have been reversed. The big question now is who should pick up the tab on the debt? The program is financed entirely through premiums paid by workers and employers. Economics professor Miles Korak at the City University of New York suggests any updates to the program should include the government as a third contributing financer. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. And now we look abroad where the Trudeau government has added 20 more Iranian officials and entities to its sanctions list and says within weeks Ottawa will ban entry to thousands of regime officials. Nicole Rice explains. Last Friday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced Canada will forever ban more than 10,000 members of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps from entering Canada and spend $76 million to better enforce sanctions. 
The move followed mounting pressure by the Conservatives and members of the Iranian diaspora in Canada to list the IRGC as a terrorist group. Justice Minister David Lametti says doing so would punish Iranians who opposed the regime and who had been conscripted into the IRGC and served in non-combat roles. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press. And one more story with an international focus. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie says Canada is set to become a major energy supplier for the Indo-Pacific region. Adam Burns has that story. Jolie is visiting Japan and South Korea this week in a trip meant to build on close ties with Canada's allies. Companies from those countries hold a 20% stake in a liquefied natural gas terminal set to open in Kitimat, B.C. in 2025. Jolie says it will help shore up energy security in a part of the world where China and Russia have been growing more assertive. Adam Burns, the Canadian Press. Let's get to our daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. Yesterday we asked you, on World Sight Day, how often do you get your eyes checked? 45% of you said frequently, 22% of you said occasionally, and 33% of you said rarely. Today's daily poll, I'm just going to start by setting the table here a little bit with some COVID-19 numbers, a bit of a broad update before I give you some specifics in the regional news later in the show. But currently there are 5,752 active people actively in hospital with COVID-19, 5,752. That's about a 700-person increase from this time last week, and public health officials in Alberta, Quebec, and Ontario have all confirmed that cases and hospitalizations are spiking in those provinces. So the question at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, COVID-19s are, COVID-19 cases are increasing across the country. Do you still have a collection of pandemic-related supplies? Masks, wipes, hand sanitizer, tests, etc.? Yes or no? I sure do. Bunch of masks laying around, bunch of tests laying around, although I burned through a bunch of them <laughs> when I was sick last week to make sure I wasn't uh, COVID positive. But uh, masks, hand sanitizer, all kinds of stuff laying around my house. I've got quite the Ebenezer of supplies. Let's uh, bring in Alex Smythe on this one. Alex, what about you? Do you still have a stack of supplies laying around the house? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm not getting rid of any of my uh, COVID supplies anytime soon. I you know, the numbers speak for themselves. The hospitalizations are rising. The case count is rising. Uh, yeah, this pandemic is not over. You know, we're getting into the cold flu season. You and I both have had uh, colds recently. So, I, I mean, it's it's as fresh as it could be in our minds that, oh, yeah, people are still going to get sick. You know, uh, we, we especially have to be careful this year because, you know, we're a bit removed from the initial impact of COVID-19. Everyone got vaccinated or most people got vaccinated. Those who wanted to got their first booster, then their second booster. Now there's the bivalent boosters out there. How many people are actually getting them? The numbers are diminishing with each new vaccine that's available. So I I think it's now more uh, important to take care of yourself, take care of your environment. Okay, well, wear a mask where you feel it's a high risk environment, use hand sanitizer, use all these things. So for me, I'm going to continue to stock up on the supplies as needed because I think, you know, this this winter might be a bit of a challenging one, at least one, I think, in my more immediate circle. Yeah, there could be some there could be some tricky moments for sure. I uh I I've been pretty cautious even though you know I've been going to bars and going out and doing things. I've typically mm-hmm. picked some spots where the mask would stay on. And one of the spots where I was always keeping it on was public transit. But a few weekends ago, 
I just got Cavalier on my way downtown. I said, oh, we're not going to wear a mask today. We're going to let it run. And then what happened? Four days later, I was brutally sick. So maybe the immune system isn't quite as strong as I would like it to be. So I got to keep these supplies laying around as well. Uh, Eliza Rocco, what about you? You keeping some supplies around the apartments? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think some of my supplies have been pushed back to the cabinet in the cabinet (laughs) a little bit. But uh, definitely, like, I still have everything. I have piles and piles of masks that I probably will never get rid of for years and years and years. But, yeah, I'm definitely keeping all my supplies, stocking up. I have, like, a million COVID tests that I take very often because I am very paranoid. Um, me having really bad allergies does not help with me being yeah. very paranoid. Yeah, no, for sure. For, I mean, that, that's what I was feeling last week too, right? That I was like so stuffed up. I was like, oh man, <laughs> I, I got to make sure I keep testing on this one. Yeah, for sure. I, I test all the time and that's not going to, that's not something that's going to change for the foreseeable future. We, even when things have loosened up a little bit, like we're still in, we're still in a pandemic. There's COVID is still around and it's going to be around for a very, very long time. So I'm going to keep all my supplies and I'm recommending to my family and friends that they keep their supplies yeah. too, just to be on the safe end. Stay a little ahead of the game, yeah, right? You don't want, bit. you don't want to be caught in the rush, right? And there's, there was probably an opportunity here a couple of weeks ago to be buying masks at a deep discount and buying hand sanitizer <laughs> yeah. and wipes at a deep discount. So I know it's hard for folks who may be on a tighter income or uh, not making, not, not necessarily uh, having the same kind of benefits that we'd like to see in terms of uh, government support. But if you can sort of find a sale here and there on the front end, it can help you keep a couple of those uh, supplies stocked up as well. And and there's still places that are giving away the uh, free tests as well, oh, certain yeah. grocery stores and pharmacies. Uh, you have to be a little more proactive about it now. You have to kind of ask. They're not just sort of handing it to you or giving it to you. But definitely those uh, those tests are still available in places like Ontario for sure. Eliza, thank you for this. We appreciate it. Thank you. That's Eliza Rocco. We might hear from her a little bit later in the show. We'll see. But for now, let's bring in Alex Smythe for the National Weather Update. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. In St. John's, Newfoundland, it's clouds clearing this morning for sunshine and a high of 17. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's a mix of sun and clouds with possible showers and the high there is 19. In Montreal, Quebec, rains this morning then clearing up for the afternoon and the high is 13. Over to Ottawa, Ontario. It's a mix of sunny clouds with possible rain in the morning, and 16 is the high. Now to Toronto, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds and possible rain this morning as well, and the high there, 13. To Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's cloudy with possible rain or flurries this morning, then that chance of flurries or rain is definitely turning to rain this afternoon with six being the high. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, It's cloudy with a chance of flurries this morning, then becoming a mix of sun and clouds. There's also wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour, and seven is the high. To Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and clouds this afternoon, and a high is 14. Over to Calgary, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour, and a high of 18. Edmonton, Alberta, it's mainly cloudy, Wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour in the high of 19. Up in Yellowknife Northwest Territories, it's cloudy with a chance of showers or flurries this morning and wind gusts up to 60 kilometers an hour as well. The high there is two. Vancouver, BC, 
a mix of sunny clouds, 18 is your high. And finally, in Victoria, BC, it's mainly sunny and a high of 21. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, the news panel will assemble to discuss the continuing fallouts of the Hockey Canada scandal. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's Friday, which means the news panel gets together. Let's welcome into the show one of our panelists, Joita Gupta. Hey, good morning, Joita. Indeed. And we'll say hello to Michelle McQuig in just a moment. But we'll say hello to Michelle right now. Good morning, Michelle McQuig. (laughs) Good morning, friends. So let's jump right into our first story, guys. We have three topics on the docket today, and they're all juicy ones. Hockey Canada CEO Scott Smith and the rest of the board are stepping down after months of scandals surrounding multiple allegations of institutional mismanagement of reported sexual assaults. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says the resignations are an important first step in rebuilding accountability, but Trudeau notes there is much more work to do. Well, I think seeing uh, the entire board and the CEO step down is an important step forward. Uh, But there's a a culture to change. There is an awful lot of work to ensure uh, that the structures and systems that Hockey Canada has in place uh, protects employees, protects Canadians, protects our kids as they play hockey. Sponsors had been withdrawing support from the organization, especially over the last few weeks. The federal government froze funding over the summer. Minister of Sport Pascal Saint-Ange plans to review how Ottawa funds national sports organizations. On my side, at the federal level, what I'm working on right now to improve the sports system is I'm going to review the entire funding system. So all the organizations that receive federal funding are going to have higher expectations in regards to governance, transparency, uh, prevention of abuse and maltreatment in sport. Michelle, we talked about this during the summer, but you felt we should revisit it. Why? I did because it's it this week the past two weeks in particular really felt almost COVID-esque in just the, the rapid-fire developments. It seemed like every hour there was someone else walking away from the table in terms of a sponsorship or someone else stepping down or more pressure being brought to bear from a significant and maybe even unexpected quarter. So there have been a lot of developments on this file on Hockey Canada specifically in the past couple of weeks. And now I thought it was time to revisit it because a government committee is also going to start branching out and trying to look at ways in which these kinds of situations can be averted in other sports. Uh, It doesn't get discussed very much, but lots of other Canadian athletic organizations and associations have been coming under similar fire. Um, I'm, forget, I'm blanking now whether it's Alpine Canada or, or, or Skate Canada or some other organization also had its funding pulled earlier this year, but it never really gets discussed in light of Hockey Canada. Uh, with, with culture change on the mind for a lot of politicians, it just seemed to me like this was another good time to not only rehash some of the developments that have gone down since we last talked about this, but look ahead to an issue that obviously is not going to be going away anytime soon. Joita, the last time we spoke about this was the week the federal government froze the funding to Hockey Canada. Since then, it's been a couple of months, were there any of the developments that particularly struck you as notable? Yeah, I think after the um, 
after the federal government froze funding to Hockey Canada, I really thought that would be the turning point where we would see some change, uh, not because the federal funding makes up the largest portion of the funding envelope. It does not, but because it received a lot of public attention. And yet it felt like the board uh, sat on its hands and made some gestures towards improving the culture, but didn't really do anything substantial. And what has been really interesting to me, because unless you're a total nerd, you're probably not thinking about the business side of sport. But I'm a total nerd. So I'm often intrigued by the flow of money, and we don't really associate amateur sport of any kind, including hockey, with the flow of money. But there is a lot of money involved. And the development that has really piqued my interest in the last couple of weeks has been all of these sponsors walking away. You think about Tim Hortons, Canadian yeah. Tire, TELUS, you name them, they're all jumping ship. And, of course, a number of provincial hockey federations have also pulled out. So, obviously, this is a way to distance, but it was also, I think, the straw that broke the camel's back. I don't see how the board could have done anything but resigned, given the mass exodus of sponsors. So, I am really curious to see if this now will be the turning point, given that, uh, loath as I am to say it, it is often money that talks. Yeah, no, that, that was my key takeaway here too, Joita. When, when major companies like Nike and Bauer and Tim Hortons and TELUS, all of these companies that you mentioned said, you know what? We don't want our brand associated with this anymore. That's what got these wheels turning. And most of that happened inside the last 10 to 12 days. I, I actually can't even put my finger on why the last 10 to 12 days ended up being the catalyzation point because it felt like perhaps the board and the CEO were ready to weather the storm but it seemed every opportunity they had to try and make good or try to re restore faith, they would end up putting their foot in their mouth or embarrassing mm -hmm. themselves. So it was yeah. over and over and over again that they thought they could just sort of stonewall this. And eventually the public attention got to be too strong. And those brands are massive, massive Canadian brands. They didn't want to be associated anymore. And for one of those brands to say, we don't want to be associated with the national hockey program, I think really resonated. And at a certain point, when you lose the financial viability of the organization, that was it. So I, I agree with you, Joita. It might be loath to talk about it, but at the end of the day, money is what finances this whole operation. And when the money dried up, it was time for the board to go, which is cynical. And it makes you wonder about whether or not you can actually get a culture change here if all it is that money that talks. But that's going to be that's going to be one of the developments that we're watching in the rebuilding phase here. But let's come back to the institutional side of this, because fundamentally the conversation we're having here is what I would call more of the master's level conversation in regards to discussing what sexual assault is from an institutional point of view. Because one of the criticisms that you're reading over and over again is, well, shouldn't the players be punished? Shouldn't the players be punished? Yes, the players who conducted some of these assaults should be punished. But the issue at play for Hockey Canada is that they made it impossible for them to be punished by a lack of transparency and paying people off. That's going to be ultimately what the crux of this is. So that's why this investigation and this conversation is so institutionally focused. And sports typically ends up being a microcosm of society at large. And organizationally, institutions usually have to grapple with these broader societal issues. Michelle, what do you think of its capacity, the institution of sport, the institution of hockey, of its capacity to do so? Well, this is, this is another reason why I brought the topic up. And I just wanted to say that I, I, I feel like we're all sharing brains here today, guys, because the, the, the corporate sponsorship element 
was what really got me in this whole situation. And I also, I honestly found it kind of discouraging that it wasn't until those really big ticket sponsors started to walk away that we started to see the kind of meaningful change that the government was pushing for. Um, and I, I feel like this sort of is emblematic of a lot of other similar situations we've seen in sport in that, I, in my estimation anyway, sport is always one of the last sectors to implement changes that have been taking place in society at large. We always see sport being a little bit behind the times in, in matters like this one, for instance. So they're now having the, you know, Hockey Canada right now is facing the sort of Me Too reckoning that others started to face in 2017. They seem to be behind the times on racial conversations. Remember all the, the taking a knee controversy with Colin Kaepernick and, and others in, in sport there. Uh, they've been slower to tackle uh, issues of, of domestic violence. They've been slower to include more LGBTQ athletes and, and foster a culture of inclusion there. So to me, while yes, sport abso absolutely is a microcosm of society, and, and I've, I've always found the intersection between sport and social issues really fascinating in politics and all, all those things, it, it always seems to be slower on the uptake to get on board with these kinds of changes and, and get with the times. And I, I feel like this is another example, and I've always wondered why sport specifically seems to be a bit more resistant to that kind of change. Um, what I think is an additional dimension to the Hockey Canada situation in particular is that hockey, for good or ill, uh, that's a whole other conversation, is so tightly tied to Canadian identity, at least in, in shorthand and in sort of global shortcut terms. So I feel like Canada is really now only starting to get serious about sexual misconduct in sport and that culture that fosters it because it's affecting hockey in particular. And I find that a bit disheartening, to be honest. So I reject your premise a little bit there, Michelle, that sports is Fair slow. <laughs> I believe that the issue is that sports ends up becoming one of the last remaining pillars of monoculture. So when there's an incident in sports, when there's a controversy in sports, the spotlight shines extremely, extremely brightly. I would argue that now this is now, now again, the important thing to differentiate here is athletes versus institutions, because I would argue yes, that absolutely. athletes yeah. tend to actually push social issues forward in a way that's ahead of most of society. But it's the institutions that end up reacting slowly. And that's one of the reasons. I strongly agree. And, I, I was making that a record. Absolutely right. And, and that's one of the reasons why I believe perhaps we distrust the capacity of institutions to deal with this. Right. That Colin Kaepernick took that knee in 2016. And it took the NFL almost four years and the death of George Floyd to actually try to take any kind of action from, from the public relations perspective within the sport. So I agree with you in the sense that institutions are slow, but I actually believe it's that sports ends up putting spotlights on these issues in a way that actually changes the conversation. Ray Rice and domestic abuse, I would argue when that happened in 2014, that absolutely changed the mainstream conversation in regards to what domestic abuse looked like when he hit his fiance in that elevator. When we saw that video, it resonated with people in a way that I don't think the conversation resonated before. Joita, sorry, I don't mean to be leaving you out here. I want to get your perspective on the capacity of sports and sporting organizations as institutions to grapple with these societal issues. Yeah, I think because athletes become such big figures and loom large in public consciousness, when there is ever a scandal involving domestic abuse or uh, LGBT issues or taking a knee, it does resonate beyond the field. So to those who will say that sport is sport and has no resonance beyond the playing field, 
Um, sorry, but I have to disagree with you on that. And I think yeah. part of the reason, I, but I do tend to lean in favor of Michelle's argument in that I think that sport is a microcosm, but it also exists in a bit of a bubble. And I think Michelle did a really good job of, of outlining the many, many instances where sport, uh, sporting institutions have been late to the party, have not been the early adopters of change. And I really wondered why that is. I think athletes and the institutions that prop them up are under a lot of pressure. Pressure to keep the sponsorship dollars, pressure to keep uh, athletes performing at a high, you know, at a high level. Ultimately, as I said to you a few minutes ago, we have to come back to the money. It's all about keeping the flow of money and, and, and making sure the sponsors are kept happy. How do you do that? You do that by doing the following. If you're an athlete backed up by an institution, what is your focus? Your focus is to win. And so if you are an athlete that is winning, if you are the star of the show, if you are the a hockey player that's making a lot of goals, there is a lot that gets forgiven and swept under the rug. And your, a lot of work is done to make sure your reputation is kept squeaky clean. And so things like domestic abuse or in this instance, sexual assault often get treated as, and I'm not saying this is right, but I think they get treated as personal problems or as distractions or things that take away from winning. And that's the real problem with why institutions are so slow to react, why they operate at a glacial pace. And so the institution is actually protecting a player who's winning and sidelining and silencing people who would come forward. Uh, they, and there, there are two things at play here. One, of course, is there's a long history of abuse in hockey directed at players themselves. Uh, Sheldon Kennedy and uh, Theo Flory, they've been very candid about their experience. I actually think we've talked more about that. But what hasn't really been discussed is the impact on women. And what you're seeing is these players who are hyped up, they're told you're celebrities, you, uh, you're, you have access to booze, to women, to money, and they're all operating in this bubble, often with amateur sports. They're living far away from their families and communities, and there's very little accountability. But the institution that is setting this all up doesn't really care that there's a lack of accountability because there is money to be made and athletes to be propped up so long as they keep on winning. Julia, I'm going to stay with you here because I want to wrap up. I'm going to, I'm going to cram three questions together that I'm going to ask to you, and then we're going to give it to Michelle for last word on this one. Based on that last answer, I think I know what your answer to this is going to be. Can institutions self-correct without a larger oversight? Is a government committee the answer? If not a government committee, then what? Yeah, I don't think that they can necessarily self-correct. It's a bit like the fox watching the hen house. The government committee isn't the answer, but it is a good start. And it's a good start because the government does have the ability to push certain things to the forefront, like you know having a public inquiry, getting different voices heard, and holding the government accountable because they're at least in part holding the purse strings. But it needs more than yeah. that. It needs involvement from communities. It needs involvement from players themselves. It needs buy-in from sports organizations. It needs a lot of people coming to the table and saying, we need to turn a corner and we need to change. The two things I would like to see put in place in the short term, like right away, is uh, whistleblower protection. 
I think uh, we have, might have people who see here or do or or are privy to something that they want to complain about, but feel that they can't. This could be a coach. It could be anybody who observes sexual misconduct, um, but feel that they can't come forward. So we need stronger whistleblower protection. The second thing that I think we need is an independent complaint mechanism. So if you look at this yes. particular case involving the World Junior Team, again, who was investigating Hockey Canada? Hockey Canada. Uh, come on, guys, that is not a way to conduct an in independent investigation. So we need to have some kind of an independent complaint process so that complainants can feel assured that there's a bit of distance and that they're actually getting hurt. I would make a quick comment here saying that any kind of resolution on this is that public money shouldn't be going to uh, what I would call monetarily successful sports. Uh, government money should only be going towards equity programs inside places like Hockey Canada in regards to growing the women's game, uh, growing the para, para, uh, para ice hockey, blind hockey. It should be going to equity programs or like uh, programs in underserved, underprivileged communities. That's where government dollars should be going, not to be paying for 20,000 seat arenas and world junior championships that make oodles of dough. Michelle, last thought here going to you. Can these institutions regulate without self, without like without some kind of oversight? Is government the answer? If not, if government's not the answer, then what? I, I really, uh, Joey, I have to thank you for, for channeling directly into my brain and saying a lot of what I would have said here. No, I don't believe institutions can or should self-correct or be expected to. Clearly, they don't necessarily even know how, even if they want to do it. Uh, is government the answer? I don't think it is the entire solution. Um, I think we've just demonstrated, we've seen a pretty graphic example of the fact that government action didn't spur change, but corporate action did. Uh, so I do think we're going to need to see some driver of action from the government in that they, Joey is right, they do hold some of the purse strings, so not all of them. And an independent oversight body would be a great, great start. In fact, I, I will note that on the government action front, there is going to be now an integrity of, uh, I believe it's an integrity sport commissioner. The, the title... I had to switch laptops and my notes are on the other machine. <laughs> so I apologize that it's not right before me. But uh, there is going to be someone designated to handle these kinds of complaints beyond hockey, which I think is really important. I, I would hate to see other sports and the need for cultural change on a broader spectrum over overshadowed by what's happening in hockey specifically. Thank you for revisiting this topic with us. It's an important one, and I sense we'll end up revisiting, revisiting it some more on the show. Coming up next, we'll reflect on the work ahead for Alberta's new premier, Danielle Smith. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Let's address our next topic. Danielle Smith has been sworn in as Alberta's new premier. Smith says healthcare reform is one of her top priorities and she intends to change management of Alberta's health services. So this is a management problem. It is not a problem with our frontline workers. Our frontline workers need to be supported. And when it happens in a in a business, when they fail to meet targets and they fail to meet direction, you change the management. And so that's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to change the management. Premier Smith says she hopes to have a timeline for health care reform completed in 90 days. Here's the uh, clip that really drew some attention. Premier Smith also shared some thoughts about the difficulties COVID-19 vaccine mandates caused people. 
I don't think I've ever experienced a situation in my lifetime where a person was fired from their job or not allowed to watch their kids play hockey or not allowed to go visit a loved one in long-term care or hospital or not allowed to go get on a plane to either go across the country to see family or even travel across the border. So they have been the most discriminated against group that I've ever witnessed in my lifetime. And that statement caused no controversy whatsoever. Joita, you want to talk about Danielle Smith's first week on the job or do you think we should take this conversation? Yeah, I think it's really interesting to know who she is. Uh, at one point, she was the leader of the Wild Rose Party, which was Alberta's reform party. And she, uh, at, you know, of course, that has now since merged to become part of the UPC. Um, she, at one point, as the leader of the Wild Rose Party, crossed the floor to join the United Conservative Party uh, over the infighting about LGBTQ inclusion and same-sex marriage. So although she is a conservative, She's not socially conservative, and that's important to keep in mind. But just in looking at her background, she does tend to come in more on the right of Jason Kenney, especially, as you might guess, on issues around COVID-19 and vaccine mandates. You heard that clip right off the top where she's pretty scathing about the management of the healthcare system and, you know, the impact of these vaccine mandates, uh, the clip about the unvaccinated being the most discriminated group of people that she's ever seen in her lifetime drew a lot of skepticism and a lot of eyebrows shot up, mine included. Uh, she, um, when we think about the vaccine mandate issue, we know that that was an issue that divided the Kenny government. And it would be very interesting to see, given her position and some of her statements about making reforms to healthcare, including firing Dina Hinshaw, who's the chief medical officer, um, whether it, the, the, the United Conservative Party is going to be able to get behind Daniel Smith ahead of the Alberta election, which, in case you missed it, isn't actually that far away. It's coming up in May 2023. So six or seven months down the road, Alberta could be heading for an election. And I would be very curious to see uh, how and if the party gets behind her. And then she made some really interesting, quote unquote, remarks about um, sovereignty and Alberta breaking away from the country, in a sense, and having more independence. And of course, as soon as she took office, she walked those back. Is that a good look for a premier? It's all very interesting. She's the kind of person that I suspect we secretly like to write about or talk about because there's so many angles and there's so much to talk about. <laughs> Michelle, I, I picked those two clips for a very particular reason because as I react to Premier Smith's first week in office, I think about trying to rally her own base. Let's make sure we're talking about running government like a business. Where have we heard that before? Let's talk about vaccine mandates. These are the people who back me. I'm going to say these things. I'm going to rally my troops. What do you make of her first week in office? I, I do agree with that, especially in light of the fact that she does not have a seat in the provincial legislature. She has to run and get one now. So she has to get herself elected into the House that she now is expected to lead. Uh, so I think there is definitely an element of that. But I, I also think it's... Uh, I think Joita is right, too, to, to flag the fact that this is consistent with some of her past positions. She was the leader of the Wild Rose Party, which did historically lean further to the right than the Conservative Party of the day, which was led by the likes of Jim Prentice. So I, I do think that while she is sort of 
playing to her base somewhat. I do think it is a, a relatively authentic take, and it certainly, I don't think, is hugely surprising, some of these positions she's taking, to people who have been following her career for a while. Uh, what is really wild, though, is, is her rise. Uh, this was a woman who was really on the on the margins of politics after the Wild Rose Party uh, didn't do uh, perform up to expectations in certain elections. Um, like, as we pointed out earlier, they were melded into the UCP, which I think remains deeply divided. So I, for one, am going to be really, really interested to watch the next few months in Alberta politics. I'm sure she will get elected into the legislature. Uh, but in terms of uniting the party, I think that is really going to be a big challenge. Her her victory was was tight. It took many ballots. This was no Pierre Poilievre leadership victory. It was not like that at all. There was no clear runaway winner. I think it took like five or six ballots for this to happen. Um, I suspect that the NDP and other opposition parties might be kind of happy with this development because of, of what Joita said. She, she is a figure who commands a lot of attention and is also very polarizing. Uh, I think we might be in for a very, uh, very engaging ride in Alberta politics for the next little while. Joita, you posed the question, do you believe she has the capacity to unite the party ahead of an election in less than nine months? Isn't it? It is an interesting question because, first of all, the leadership race was actually a lot closer than a lot of people had thought. She won mm-hmm. with a 53% uh, margin, but Travis Taves came in with a 46. So there, you can see that there's still a party deeply divided, and. I want to sort of echo some of what Michelle said and you said, which is that she's still behaving as though she's on a campaign trail. Actually, if my husband was on the panel, he'd, he'd, he'd take it one step further and say, not only is she pandering to her base, she's still acting as though she's on talk radio and, you know, just going <laughs> off the cuff. And I said, I don't know if that'll play well with Dave and Michelle, but uh, in the interest of including his point of view, because he's pretty adamant about it and I've had to listen to it all week, I'm going to say she's still acting... <laughs> She's still yeah, that is her background. She she was a radio host. So she I was a radio host. Yeah, no, he was a radio host, and you know she would kind of just talk off the cuff and very much like you know say things uh, without thinking through thinking them through. And so it would be very interesting to see if the party can get behind her. Uh, and it's very hard to say. Uh, there is, as you noted, an election. And the election might be what forces her to tone down some of her more extreme remarks. The thing is, parties tend to be more united when they're ahead in the polls. Um, Now, I'll I'll defer to Michelle because maybe she's seen more recent polling. But as far as I could tell, the NDP is still doing quite well. And they might even be ahead of the UCP in their polls. So if the UCP continues to lag, Danielle Smith is going to get blamed for that, for being divisive, for being extremist, for not being able to unite people under uh, under one umbrella, uh, bring people together with her message. However, if she, her, if she is popular with the people, if the party's fortunes change, if they do better in the polls than they are doing, then that will, in and off of itself, silence her critics within the party. Um, one of the things to take into one of the things to take into account is Jason Kenney, uh, who apparently didn't meet with her as part of the transition. Quite shocking uh that that didn't happen but also uh jason he was he was publicly critical of her throughout the entire leadership like he He actually weighed in during the leadership campaign and pretty much opposed the majority of daniel smith's thoughts yeah exactly And, and just to make that very clear for people who haven't been following alberta politics he came out and said your sovereignty position is completely untenable it's unconstitutional and he also has a very different take on conservatism and he's very 
concerned, quote unquote, about the rise of populism in some elements of the Conservative Party. So he tends to believe in a more gradual change, um, whereas what he said is he doesn't believe in the snarl, uh, the sort of snarly, you know, tear it all down populist kind of movement that, that Daniel Spears seems to be the front runner of. So what she's really gone and done is aligned herself, at least in terms of her rhetoric, with the most extreme and vocal segment of the population. Because when we think about the anti-vaxxers in Alberta, I'll grant you that they might be a larger percentage of the population than elsewhere in Canada, but they are still a minority, albeit a vocal minority. And by aligning herself as openly and as strongly with them as she has, I would wonder if that kind of a statement would play well with rest, the rest of Albertans. And the other thing I'll say, and I'm surprised none of you has actually said it, but to say that the unvaccinated are the most discriminated against groups in her lifetime is patently absurd. Uh, and oh, patently you, you were just absurd. waiting. To, <laughs> I think we're all holding our fire for that one. <laughs> you know, it's just patently absurd because think about the things that have, hap that have happened in her lifetime. The, the Rwandan genocide, there's been ethnocide, there's been uh, apartheid. I mean, the fact that she's even saying this is really going to, you know, it's going to be a good day for the NDP if she continues to go on like this, uh, because the NDP will really pick up on this and run with this and, and call her out as an unsuitable leader. I'll jump in with a domestic example in, in Indigenous residential schools, some of which were still operating into the 90s and many of which operated in Alberta. Uh, she has taken a lot of heat from Indigenous groups, among many, many, many others for that comment. And uh, I'm sure we don't need to make the case as to why they spoke up. Do you guys want to touch at all on the sovereignty position? I think it's pretty self-evident that that's great rhetoric and it plays really well uh, amongst sort of the Wexit gang in Saskatchewan and Alberta. I, again, I'm, I'm just going to keep coming back to the point here. Premier Smith is playing to her base. And, and we know that base is a strong vocal base. Whether or not that can unite the party, we don't know. But she wants to make sure that her people remain her people in her first week in office. Mm -hmm. And that's politics. Like, I, I'm, I'm getting kind of a sense of tone here because you may disagree with her politics. You don't like the tactic. But that's what politicians do. You talk to your base. You secure. You make sure your people come home to vote for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But and, and yet we've seen that softening this week of that position. So that this is one element in which she has already, I think, started to acknowledge the difference between political rhetoric and political reality. Mm -hmm. And the other thing to keep in mind is with the softening of the rhetoric, one has to wonder if she knew all along and had deliberately played to her base, as Davis said, or whether, you know, it's one of those situations where she got carried away saying what she wanted to say. And... Um now cooler heads have prevailed. The one of the things that I often think about is, you know, some of the commentary we were hearing around Donald Trump in his first few months in office, where we were routinely saying, he sounds like he's still on the campaign trail, make America great again. And a lot of commentators were saying he needs to sound, quote unquote, more presidential. And I think if Danielle Smith actually wants to make an honest run at winning the election and get all Albertans behind her, she's going to have to sound less like she's on the campaign trail and more like the premier of Alberta. I disagree. I think that people are really starting to like the idea of politicians who speak in plain language and speak in plain English. And I think that commentators are officially out of touch with what people are actually feeling. Here's what I'll say. At the start of this week, people probably didn't know who Danielle Smith was, at least people on the periphery. Everybody across the country knows who Danielle Smith is now. Period, point final. And there are no consequences in political rhetoric these days. We can talk about the myriad of reasons why there are not, but the fact is, Danielle Smith is on the map. She's running the 
she's running the government and she has nine months to make her case to the people of Alberta. And I think that there's a lot of people who understand what happened when the NDP won that election in 2015, 2016. And there are a lot of people who will come home and vote for the UCP, regardless of how they feel about Danielle Smith. It's because of how they feel about the NDP and Rachel Notley. And that's where we're leaving this conversation because we have to go to commercial break because after the break, we consider some proposed energy conservation policies in Ontario and Italy, places that are totally the same. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Juita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. We have one more topic on deck. Ontario is proposing some energy efficiency ideas, including offering incentive to su- incentives to some customers to use less air conditioning on hot days. Energy Minister Todd Smith asked the independent electricity system operator to suggest new conservation initiatives. Households with central air conditioning and a smart thermostat can volunteer to allow the system operator to reduce their cooling load for bringing down the peak demand in the summer in exchange for getting paid what continues to be an unspecified incentive. Meanwhile, Italy has a new plan to deal with rising energy costs. Don't heat your home in the winter. Megan Williams has the story. New rules are on the way for heating with gas in Italy this winter, with centrally heated buildings and private homes obliged to turn on the heat two weeks later than usual and off a week earlier in spring and to keep temperatures under 19 degrees Celsius or 66 Fahrenheit. The new restrictions will apply to all buildings except places of worship, nurseries, kindergartens and swimming pools. The energy-saving plan is aimed at tackling Europe's energy crisis after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Authorities say they'll carry out spot checks to make sure the rules are followed. Megan Williams, ABC News, Rome. Megan Williams is the best. I love that she gives the Celsius and the Fahrenheit conversion. That's the kind of information we need because I can't do that kind of math on the spot. Let's jump into these policy proposals because... On their face, they don't strike me as egregious or awful, but they do strike me as Band-Aid solutions as opposed to real solutions. You know, just moving the pieces around on the checkers board while maybe not considering changing the game. What do you think, Michelle? I think they're interesting proposals. I I keep trying to wrap my head around 19 as a peak and that I I keep having to adjust my thinking to remember that Italy does not have the kind of winters that we're accustomed to in Canada. Certainly not. 19 would not cut it for these Canadian winters, uh, even for someone who runs warm like I do. Um, But I, I... it's interesting. I, I'm not quite sure what to make of them. I think they're 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 very politically risky moves, which to me speaks to the severity of the situation. So I don't know if I'm willing to say that they're just band-aid solutions, although they probably are. But it, I think it speaks to the the, the fact that this is a, a a more major crisis than perhaps people were willing to acknowledge in the past. And I think more about the fallout rather than the policy itself, just because this is really going to get everyday people fired up in a very different way than we might have been accustomed to on this sort of issue. Yeah, I I can imagine that people might get a little bit uh, finicky about the idea of saying, you mean I can only put my heat on two weeks later, it's getting shut off a week earlier, especially in sort of larger buildings. And we'll explore that maybe a little bit more deeply in a moment. But Joita, I want to give you the opportunity for your general impression on these policy proposals, because they're not the same, but they're not entirely different. 
isn't it an interesting move by the Ford government, the very same Ford government that just as, as soon as it got elected, turned around and canceled incentives for electric cars. So, so much for, you know, doing things for the, and the environment. You know, I agree with you, Dave. I think it's a bit of a, and Michelle too. I agree with Michelle in the sense that I think this is going to get everyday people riled up. But I agree with Dave in that I think the major uh, contributors to environmental degradation and climate change is industry and not individuals. Um, and instead of tackling uh, the carbon output from industry, the government of Ontario, at least, is trying to slap a Band-Aid on this and show that they're doing something for the environment or to tackle climate change without and, 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 and promote energy conservation without actually doing anything of substance. The issue with Italy, um, I don't have as much context, but just going off of what Megan Williams has said, uh, it sounds like it might be a temporary measure to deal with the energy shortfall caused mm -hmm. by the war in mm -hmm. Ukraine. So I would suspect that they'll probably put things back to the way they were after that's all been ironed out. But even if it hasn't, um, loath as I am to say it, with global warming, probably starting heating two weeks later in the year and uh, suspending heating or putting it off to a, a week ahead in the spring, probably won't be as detrimental to people as we might at first think, especially because our summers tend to be longer and warmer. Uh, so just, you know, accounting for the changing climate that, that we all so often talk about. Mm. Julia, I want to stay with you and coming back to Ontario, because I want to ask a personal question and then we'll broaden this out again. What kind of incentive would it take to have you turn off your AC during a hot day? Probably not very much. I mean, I don't turn it on all that much to begin with. I tend to be very cold all the time. With that said, I can't really put. <laughs> with that said, I can't really put my finger on a dollar amount that would actually be an incentive. But what I might consider is the provision, especially in like I live in a condo building, or if you live in a multi-residential apartment building, the provision of an adequate cooling room. Mm, I would consider mm. situations where we also amend building codes to allow for things like breezeways, at least in the summer that's a really good way to mm. tackle temperatures so there are other things that can also be done to reduce uh that aside from an incentive that can that maybe will be uh a, a bit of an opening for people to turn off that air conditioning and try to get cool in the summer in other ways i am overweight and hairy but even when i was skinny and less hairy <laughs> i still ran extremely hot it would take a lot during the summer my, my unit we all we all live in in multi-residential buildings my unit gets extremely hot even yesterday when it's relatively cold outside I don't even have the heating on in my unit, and it was up to 76 Celsius, just naturally, just on the heat of the building, which I find to be uncomfortably hot. So for me, it would actually take a pretty good dollar amount for me to give away my AC when it's 35 degrees outside and 35 degrees in my apartment. Michelle, what about you? Dave, are we neighbors? It was 25 degrees Celsius in my apartment yesterday. Oof, oof, whoa. Yeah. Um, so nice. No, so not. <laughs> um, I am on Team Dave, I'm afraid, when it comes to the AC, but I will say I would be willing, if you're talking about peak temperatures, I'm willing to suffer through the heat a little bit more during the day. Where I will not budge is at night. I cannot sleep if it's too hot. You do not want me to lose my sleep because then I'm an absolute nightmare on wheels and you don't want to deal with that. So um, I would be much more inclined to to make the sacrifice during the day because I, I do see value, of course, in not necessarily cooling things down to the degree where I'm comfortable. So I'd be will I would be willing to compromise during the day, less so for sleep. Mm. Um, 
holy first world problems, Batman. Not for all. sure. But but I think but we've but we've talked about the concept of AC as a human right a couple times with heat waves and we some did. of the deaths yeah. and some of the reports that have come out. So like we know that it's not just necessarily our first world problems. There are people who've gone through legitimate suffering and loss of life as a result of poor urban planning and a lack of proper cooling. So you have to be careful with. But you I have think to be it's important to policies. specify that this is not. You're right, but I feel like it's worth pointing out that none of this really applies to any of the three of us. Oh, oh for sure. For <laughs> sure. Okay, here's where I start making a little bit of a, a, let's call it a serious argument that I can already acknowledge is a stretch. But do these policies seem like they could both end up being a little bit discriminatory, not to put myself in the Premier Daniel Smith uh, category? In Italy, larger buildings are being targeted, so that means renters don't get to decide when they get heat, and people who own homes do. In the case of Ontario, we're giving homeowners with the luxury of central IC extra financial rewards. Okay, like maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but what do you think, Joita? I think you're onto something there, especially with homeowners who not only have the luxury of air conditioning, but might be rich enough to have a cottage and they'll just decamp to the cottage when it gets really hot. So I think there are definitely uh, resonances here where we are, uh, like I said, it is a Band-Aid solution. They're not getting at the, the crux of the problem. So they're targeting so, you know, segments of the population and pitching this as you're doing something good for the environment or you know, you're trying to save energy and that's going to help all of us. But really the people who are going to be most let down by this especially in the in Ontario in the summer, are tenants and low-income renters in high-rise apartments because their landlords are not going to have an, an incentive, uh, not that air conditioning is required anyways, but at least in those buildings where central AC is provided, landlords are not going to get an incentive to turn down mm. the temperature. And mm. we know there's a lot of people with disabilities who really struggle because they can't leave their apartments in, as like compared to a rich person who has a cottage and a car. Michelle? I, I had a sense Joita was going to run sh ride shotgun with me on that. Should we be getting an old 1980s Oldsmobile and putting a three-person front seat? Please, yeah, that'd be great. Because I, I strong, I think you're onto something too. And I, and I do wonder about the impact on renters, even in any building where central AC is provided in Ontario, because I, is the incentive going to go to the landlord, or do those of us with metered connections who pay our own hydro do? Are we going to be able to to call those shots? Uh, it's Italy, really. Where I think the p potential for discrimination is more pronounced, simply because the Ontario one is more voluntary, and there's still a lot of details that are not out. So I, I am a bit more hesitant to weigh in on a plan mm -hmm. that is mm -hmm. incomplete. That's uh, fair. We, don't, we just we simply don't know uh, how it's going to look. <laughs> uh, but the Italy one, for sure, uh, it, it's a very broad brush that they're painting with, and I think it's inevitable that uh, some important groups get unfortunately painted over or painted into a corner. Michelle, this is where we say goodbye to you for the day, but we'll talk to you on Monday morning uh, to start to start our week in the right direction, so thank you very you much sure for this. sure will. Take care, everybody. That is Michelle McQuig, the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Joita, before I say goodbye to you, you guys dropped a really interesting episode of The Pulse yesterday. Yes, proud stutter with Maya Chupkov. She is a great talker and very insightful discussing not just the, uh, you know, her journey as someone who went from being afraid of her stutter and being afraid to speak to embracing the, a, the, a podcast as a medium to put the word out and to change social conversations and norms about stuttering to say that if you stutter, that is a part of human diversity and linguistic diversity. I would really encourage you to check it out on YouTube, on podcasts, or, you know, I think... Uh, yeah, YouTube and podcast YouTube now. And, and podcast. it airs a, yeah. yeah, and it airs a couple of times on AMI audio, but don't ask me when. <laughs> Thursdays at 1.30 is the original broadcast, and then uh, the wheel the wheel repeats itself. But yeah, absolutely. Podcast format as well as on YouTube. Uh, Joita, it sounds like the take police are coming for you. The sirens are buzzing, so we're going to say goodbye to you. 
thanks a lot. Have a good weekend. <laughs> That's Joanna Gupta, <laughs> the host of The Pulse, which you can find on AMI-audio. Coming up after the break, I will have the regional news update, and Brock Richardson will stop by for a sports chat. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, October the 14th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, we'll take a closer look at the importance of local TV and film production in building a robust industry across the country. Greg David will offer up his thoughts and perspective on that one. We'll also be joined by Brock Richardson in just a couple of minutes for a sports chat. And Nazarene and Rumya will be here as well as we... Uh, discuss my lack of handiness as my apartment continues to fall apart but let's begin let's begin the hour with the regional news updates the bc center for disease control is combining surveillance reporting for influenza covid19 and other respiratory illnesses in a single platform the center says the integrated data will be better for monitoring trends throughout the respiratory season included in the platform will be covid19 weekly hospitalizations and deaths wastewater data and a tool that can be used to visualize the disease path relative to other jurisdictions it will also include lab testing and primary care visit data for the flu over to the prairies, where Manitoba's Auditor General says the provincial government needs to, do, needs to do more to protect its information systems from internal misuse and outside attacks. Tyson Stutkayo says the government did not have strong password requirements for some users. We did find multiple um, instances where they could have used... Um, or they could have strengthened the standards that they were using or the requirements they had for, for password... The report also says Shared Health has given out privileged access to some workers without formal documented approval. Then over to Alberta, three First Nations in southern Alberta have filed a complaint against the federal government for alleged discrimination against adults who, who are on the reserve who are living with developmental disabilities. The complaint has been filed with the Canadian Human Rights Commission, accusing Indigenous Services Canada of systemic discrimination against adult members with disabilities. Saksika councillor Tracy McHugh says this is a long-running problem and council raised it with the Prime Minister back in June. Governments change out and, and in this case in particular, every government has failed our people with developmental disabilities on reserve. Every government. It's not just the government of the day. Children with disabilities on reserve receive support until they're 18 but are then required to move off reserve in order to obtain provincial support when they're adults. Over to Ontario, where Ontario's top doctor says an increase in COVID cases and flu season could make for a complicated year. Chief Medical Officer Dr. Kieran Moore laid out some of the new infection trends. We're seeing a slow and progressive rise in the number of COVID cases. Uh, the percentage of tests that are positive is going up this week. The number of people in hospital and in our intensive care units is also going up in Ontario. Dr. Moore says bringing back a mask in recommendation in some settings is a possibility. And then we finish in Atlantic Canada, where a COVID-19 outbreak has been declared at a long-term care facility in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. The provincial government says restrictions on visiting 
have been imposed at the Prince Edward home. As of yesterday, residents are allowed visits from only three designated caregivers with only one present at a time. And all visitors to health PEI facilities must wear a mask at all times and follow COVID-19 safety protocols. Let's bring in Brock Richardson. It's time for a sports chat. Brock, yesterday you laid out the groundwork of what's going on with the Wheelchair Rugby World Championships in Denmark. So what's the update? The update is that I have some good news, and that is that Canada beat Brazil yesterday, 59-41. And then they went on to beat Denmark, 58-56, which left them in third place in their pool, which means they would advance to the quarterfinals. And as we are speaking to each other, they are taking on the United States. At last look, they were up by two going into the half. So tune into that. Although, do have it on split screen because you don't want to miss the <laughs> second hour of Now with Dave Brown. Yeah, but. don't you dare. Don't you dare turn off our channel. Sorry, Brock, did you say this is, a, this is a, the final qualification game or is this actually the playoffs? This, this is the quarterfinal. Quarterfinal. So, Right on. Yeah. Okay. Well, best yeah, of luck so. to those athletes competing right now. Hope uh, those bodies are uh, are holding up there with that intense action going on over there in Denmark. Uh, Brock, you and I have been following closely the saga of Miami Dolphins quarterback Tua Tungavailoa and the concussion that he suffered a couple of weeks ago. There is some good news, but it's good news, I suppose, with a caveat. Back at practice. Yes, he is back at practice after only. Uh, two weeks from suffering a second hit back-to-back in weeks. Um, I think a lot of people expected him to be out uh, for quite some time, and I do still expect him to be out for quite some time. He is back in practice doing, quote, light duties, um, playing catch, throwing back and forth, all of those things. Um, For me, Dave, this, and I can't help it, but this screams to me, Oh, Teddy Bridgewater's gone, and now we have uh, our third-string quarterback in... Uh, Skylar Thompson. Skylar Thompson, who, by the way, when I, when I looked at his profile this morning, my dude doesn't even have a picture on social media. Yeah, yeah. So, like, this is where we are at. So I can sort of understand the, you know, the desire to move things along, but we are talking about a head injury. I still don't expect him to be back, but I was kind of surprised that he was already back even doing quote-unquote light duties. I have no problem with it. The concussion protocol is in place. It clearly did not work a couple of weeks ago, but going back to practice in a non-contact capacity, if he wants to stay active and stay exercising, that's fine. There's been a lot of research done about the old method of dealing with concussions, which was sit in a dark room, sleep all day. That's no longer the common accepted medical practice around concussions. They actually want people getting outside and moving and being active. And so long as he stays in a non-contact capacity, Brock, I have no issue with it whatsoever. Yeah, I think that's to be true. Again, for any Miami fans sitting out there thinking that we're any step closer, I don't know that. I mean, of course, we are a step closer if you look at this simplistically and say at least he's doing some football activity. Sure. Um, But I think it's more to the point that you're leaning towards and saying, look, this is just we're in new school way of thinking. He can't sit in a dark room and sleep because as we've proven as time's gone on with all this, sleep is not the best thing for a concussion when you have, uh, you know, 
potentially some damage. Obviously, you have to sleep sometimes, but you can't be sleeping the day away uh, with your brain uh, recovering from such impact. So it, it's good for the game. I do expect him to be out for a bit, um, but I do hope to see him hopefully back later on this season yeah. because it's better for the game. For sure. Didn't didn't end up on injured reserve, which means that uh, he's eligible to return whenever he clears the protocol completely. Um, if he'd been on injured reserve, it would have put him six weeks. So it sort of says the timeline is probably within the next three to four weeks of uh, Tua Tungavailoa returning. But uh, I don't take my, I have no issue with him being back at practice as a total endorsement of saying, throw the guy back out there and let him get his head bashed in more because... Uh, uh, I, I I don't want that for my guy, too. Uh, he seems like a sweet guy. Okay, Brock, let's move over to baseball. We promised the people that we would not forget about baseball just because the Blue Jays got eliminated. We only had one game on the MLB docket last night, the Seattle Mariners now being pushed to the brink by the Houston Astros. But, Brock, we get a triple header today and a quadruple header tomorrow in the baseball world. What's jumping out to you in the baseball world right now? Uh, well, I want to go back a bit to the game last night. I don't understand um, why we're pitching to Jordan Alvarez. I mean, the guy has been like solely being like King Kong and just winning games on his own back. You know, like I'm, I'm not sure why you would not walk him uh, a couple of times. They did finally in his last at bat uh, yesterday, but it's kind of been too late. You saw. Robbie Ray give up a, a home run as well. And it's just, I don't know, Scott Service. It's like uh, I have some of the decision makings in all of management. You kind of raise your eyebrows and go, mm, okay, interesting. Um, the Yankees get back at it again. Uh, today, they're going to play a lot of baseball in the next little while because they're going to have to catch up. Um, yeah, rained out yesterday. The, the missed day. And, uh, I think this benefits the New York Yankees. The rest uh, benefits them. I'm not sure that the Guardians have the same level of depth as the Yankees do. We'll see how they do. Again, you get some early baseball, 1 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, the L.A. San Francisco series, don't look down. This oh, is, yeah. Slam Diego Padres. Is, Let's go. This is tied up. And listen, Prayers I've listened up. to your I've listened to this show before I was even a regular contributor. I know how you feel about your Slam Diego. And look, for them to be tied, this is this is good. Like we're, we're I'm okay with this. The the Dodgers have had trouble getting out of the first round. Clayton Kershaw, bit of a struggle the other day. Um, we'll see what happens, but I am very intrigued by this series and going to be watching it throughout the weekend. I just want to pull up the pitching matchup tonight between LA and, uh, and, and slam Diego. Hold on one second. I should have done this before the show, but uh, a lot of spinning plates right now. I'm like Zorba. I'm like Zorba, the Greek spinning plates uh, all day long here on the show pitching matchup tonight. Uh, Tony Gonsolin versus Blake Snell. Blake Snell, a big free agent acquisition two years ago by San Diego. Famously, uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, part of a huge World Series run where they fell a little bit short a couple of years ago. San Diego getting a game at home at Petco Park with their ace on the mound. This is a tough, tough spot for L.A., and there, as you've pointed out, Brock, yes, they have won a World Series in the last couple of years. But traditionally, 
since basically the Kershaw era began in the early part of the last decade. This L.A. team seems to come up short year in, year out in the playoffs. And San Diego, all it took was that one win, get off the snide. These teams played a lot of one-run, two-run ball games all season long. They do not like each other. The fans in San Diego are going to be hyped up for this one. This is a game worth staying up for tonight, through and through on Sportsnet. Yes, 100%. And now if if memory serves me correctly, I think you get two games in... That's right, uh, two in San Diego. In San, so done two in LA, you, and now we're getting two in San Diego. And and if you tell any San Diego person, listen, you got to split at Chavez Ravine, they are thrilled having the next two games uh, at home, you know, because now they can uh, win at home and and LA you know they're kind of on 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 the ropes if they lose one of these 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 games here or both i don't expect them to lose both i'd be surprised if if at all i think we might be going to you know a game 5 and all this but it's it's a very very fascinating series for sure and uh dave roberts is probably sweating a little bit yep. because of recent ghosts that have haunted LA. It's it's so crazy to think a team can still be haunted even after winning a World Series, but blowing the series lead to Atlanta last year seems to have put that haunting right back inside the LA, the LA attic. And LA was not challenged for most of the year. They ran away with the National League, so they have not necessarily been in a, in a spot where they've been challenged all year round. So tonight's game is a big, big, big test for that Dodgers squad. And, and Dave, that can be tough when you're not challenged for you know the vast majority of a season and i don't care what sport we're talking about when you're not challenged you can kind of get away from your normal habits and the things you should be doing and this is kind of the thing that i've wondered about la is they've run away with divisions year after year um and and they kind of just kind of slide into the playoffs and it's like oh this 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 series is easy and then whoops wake up and we're we're tied 1-1 and and on the brink you know it it can be scary in the history of major league baseball you know like dating back to the civil war the american civil war no team has won more games by more than two runs in a season than the dodgers did this year they were just blowing the doors off teams so as you say don't face adversity all of a sudden the adversity comes it can make it very very difficult so i'm i am so keen on this game in this series and uh, i still have not bought that slam diego's padre gear i just don't know what it would look like me walking around wearing a t-shirt that says slam diego on it i just think it might send the wrong message if people don't understand so i have to be very careful uh-huh. with the wardrobe that i choose to wear uh brock Let's move into the world or back to the world of football. As we, no, no, forget football. Let's go to hockey because you and I did the full NHL preview of the Canadian teams this weekend, and a couple of these matchups come to fruition this weekend, beginning with the Battle of Ontario on Saturday nights, Ottawa and Toronto. Ottawa had a rough showing last night against Buffalo. Yeah, they did. Uh, the first half of the game uh, yesterday, I was actually quite impressed I thought that they were, you know, getting their chances. The problem is they weren't putting their chances away. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds really cliche to say this, but you can see the young, the young, um, the youngness, let's just put it that way, of this team and, and not taking advantage of the chances you get is something that can, can, cannot hurt you. And you're going to go up against a Leaf team that, you know, got off the side Everyone in Toronto can take a deep breath. We're going to at least get yep. one win. Let's this. plan the parade. Let's plan the parade. We got the first win. Let's go. 
It's all good, but you are going to get a, a motivated, <laughs> or you should get a motivated. Uh, both teams should get should be motivated for this because Battle of Ontario is always good. Um, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, with this, but always looking forward to the we, Battle of Ontario. We talked a little bit about the Ottawa expectations yesterday. I don't think anybody is hitting the panic meter just yet, losing last night. I don't think anybody will hit the panic meter losing to Toronto tomorrow if that happens, but you can only lose so many games at the start of the season before all of a sudden that optimism turns into some poison. So we'll be keeping a close eye on that one. Toronto definitely looked better against Washington last night. The home crowd was pretty hyped. I'll give Toronto a lot of credit. Our friend Mike Ross does, of course, the PA work there. He had the crowd hyped up. The organ was going. It was pretty hype in Toronto last night. So, like, all credit due to the Leafs fans for giving their team a warm welcome. It, it might have also had to do with Dwayne The Rock Johnson oh. um, firing the crowd up last night, which was kind of cool. But, uh, yeah, I, I, it's nice to see that that building is not so as, as corporate as it once was, you know, five eight years ago where you would hear nothing other than yeah. people having business meetings in their seats, <laughs> but I digress. Uh, I always smell what The Rock is cooking. When The Rock is cooking something, I always get excited. Uh, the Rock will probably not be in Calgary tomorrow night for the Edmonton visiting the Flames game, but that's another one that we're looking forward to. The Battle of Alberta is always good. Coming off the playoff series last week, both teams picking up wins in their first game of the season, so this is going to be a good one on Saturday to wrap up Hockey Night in Canada. Absolutely love this matchup. Both teams um, coming off a win. Um, you know, they're just both high-powered offenses and got good uh, goaltending. Uh, one has better goaltending than the other, in my opinion, but we'll see what happens. But at least Which one? Goaltend. Which one? Uh, to me, I would say that Edmonton, or not Edmonton, uh, Calgary has the, the slight edge on, on yeah, goaltending, Markstrom, in my opinion. Markstrom better than yeah. Campbell. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, 100%. But both very, very good, talented teams. I expect this to be a pretty, pretty high-scoring game. I'm, I'm gonna go with about a seven, seven gold scored game. Okay. Uh, on Saturday night, so we'll see. Head into my ProLine Plus app right now to get that in. Get it on the over. Let's see. The, the sports fans in Las Vegas have it set as a. Uh, is there an over-under posted? Yes, there is. Six and a half. So Brock's taking the over. Brock's taking the over on that one. So I'll yes, go over to ProLine Plus after the show and get that in there, and then I'll blame you on Monday if uh, if we get that if we get that one wrong. Should be a great weekend of hockey. I'm I'm pumped. Brock, did you know the Calgary Flames had not won their season opener since 2009? Yes, I did. That's a stunning statistic. I was statistic. surprised. That's a stunning I statistic. I was absolutely surprised. There is random. There, there's randomness in sports, but not to win your not to win your opening game for 13 years. That that kind of goes beyond random. Yeah, it's funny. Those are the stats where I'm like, where do you like? Where do you pull that out, and why do you pull that out? But the reason is so that you and I can have this discussion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. Okay, Brock, let's uh, jump over to the world of football. There's a great marquee game on Sunday afternoon in the 4 p.m. slot. The Buffalo Bills visiting the Kansas City Chiefs, a rematch of an all-time great playoff game last year. Um, yeah, it is. It's a really good matchup. It's, In my opinion, it's probably – what could be a preview of uh, the playoffs. I'm looking forward for the Bills uh, to, to at least have a good showing against Kansas City. I'm hopeful for a win. But I never doubt Patrick Mahomes. He's always 
there. But again, we've seen Josh Allen year over year improve, improve, improve. So at some point, we're going to take the edge. But today's Sunday's game for me is not the most important. It's what do we do in the playoffs? Yeah. And I know I'm speaking cliche, but the truth is, whatever happens on Sunday, I'm not going to be coming here on Monday, you know, celebrating a parade if 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 uh, the Bills win. But but it's a good stepping stone in the in the right yeah. direction. But it's. It's it's win in the playoffs for me. The Bills went to town on the Chiefs in a Sunday night game last year. I believe it was the Sunday night of Canadian Thanksgiving weekend where the Bills just obliterated the Chiefs, and it clearly did not translate to playoff success against them. Although, again, that, that game was an all-time randomness great playoff game. The Bills should have won. They had a lead with 13 seconds left. So it's one of these things where the Bills are favored going on the road to Arrowhead on a Sunday afternoon. This is a huge, huge game, and it's a wonderful marquee spot. They're been a lot of stinky four o'clock games so far in the NFL schedule. This one is a great one, and I will be super pumped for it. I want to make quick mention of the primetime game on Sunday, Philadelphia and Dallas. Right now, we're still trying to figure out if Dallas is for real. I believe for sure Philadelphia is for real, but if Dallas beats Philly in that great rivalry on Sunday night, I think Monday morning we're going to have to give some flowers to Cooper Rush or potentially the returning Dak Prescott. We'll see. Sorry to our friend Kingsley working behind the scenes. Big, big Eagles fan. He may not want to hear any praise of the Cowboys. Brock, speaking of people and their teams and their fandom, I want to bring in Alex Smythe for a moment here. Alex is a huge Chicago Bears fan. I want to get his reaction to maybe one of the worst games of football that's ever been played last night on primetime TV with the uh, oh, Bears was... falling to the Commanders. What was it, 12-7? Uh, to 7? Yeah, 12-7, to 7, and I'm just trying to think. No, I, I've definitely seen some worse games the Bears have played in, in recent <laughs> years, Dave. So, you know, temper your expectations of the worst. It was not pretty. It was not good. Uh, the It's more the same for Chicago. I mean, you put up one scoring drive. You're in the red zone three different times. You can't make anything work. Yeah. The, the questions continue because Justin Fields has proven – Time and again, he's what people are seeing from him. He holds onto the ball longer than any other quarterback in the league. He has, I think, the fifth most uh, like interceptions or turnovers coming into last night's game. And he just threw the least number of passes coming into the game. I think even if you had the totals from last night, he probably still has the the lowest passes completed of any quarterback who's who started multiple mm. weeks uh, this season. It is, it's tough to watch. Um, come, before Fields were drafted, I was actually following him in at Ohio State. Oh, I was seeing so, so many good. great things. You know, you, he's he can put on a great display. He can do the hard things. He can run fifty yards to escape pass rush, like you saw last night. He he's great at that. He can drop a dime. 40 yards downfield, but he can't seem to do the easy things that you need to do to be able to be successful in the NFL. You can't make the five yard pass. You can't do the open throw into the end zone for 10 yards. He, it, it becomes more frustrating when you see other rookie quarterbacks who come in and yeah. they immediately have 300 yard games. I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up on Justin Fields. That that organization has uh, failed him. That's a bad offensive line. That's bad offensive weapons. It's it's a bad situation. Brock, I want to pose the question to you. What was worse last Thursday, Indianapolis and Denver or this Thursday, Washington, the commanders and the Chicago Bears? 
it's got to be for me. It's got to be this week. It was such a like I tuned it in and somebody made a reference in the in the game. It's like we've seen higher hockey scores at times. You know, it's like it's it's it was just ugly all around. And I don't know. Those are games that I have trouble holding on to. And it's like this isn't a football score at this point. It's 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 something less than that. It was just not good. Alex, Alex, we're going to say goodbye yep. to you for a moment because because uh, Brock and I've got one more thing to talk about here before uh, before we uh, before we hand things over to you for the weather. Alex, Brock, at the start of the year, you said, Dave, I'm not a huge college football fan. I need your help. I need your guidance on what to watch on Saturdays. I've got one for you, Brock. Tomorrow at 3.30 p.m. Eastern time on CBS the Alabama Crimson Tide are visiting the Tennessee Volunteers over there in Knoxville. Ooh, this is going to be a game, Brock. Two undefeated teams. Alabama ranked number three in the country. Tennessee ranked number seven in the country. Alabama getting their star quarterback, Heisman winner, MVP candidate, getting him back in the mix, coming off a shoulder strain injury. The Tennessee offense, led by Hendon Hooker, the second oldest quarterback playing Division I football this year, looks spectacular the potential number one overall draft pick in the nfl draft will anderson on the alabama defensive line is going to be chasing him around all day brock this is to this point the biggest game of the year and 3 30 p.m eastern time tomorrow i need you to tune into cbs and watch this game i will and you know what dave you should go into sales because you've done a good job in selling me on uh, college football i've enjoyed every preview that you've uh, given me and uh this holds true again this week i will never follow tsn and their pushes ever again <laughs> yeah because don't... that failed me <laughs> miserably yeah they uh, showed the ucf temple game last night it was 49 14 with some f- couple minutes left in the fourth real appealing tv right there uh, brock we got to get out of here my friend enjoy a great weekend in sports what i would argue potentially is the best sports weekend on the calendar with the major league baseball and the hockey and the football so enjoy it man and we will talk to you on monday Will do. Looking forward to it. That is Brock Richardson. He is the host of the Neutral Zone. Let's go back to moping Bears fan Alex Smythe for the National Weather Updates. Now for something a bit happier besides my my Bears doing well. This is the AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're going to start in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, where it's mainly sunny and a high of 18. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's a mix of sunny clouds, but a high of 20. In St. John, New Brunswick, it's not great weather because it's mainly cloudy with increasing likelihood of rain as the day goes on. And a rainfall warning is in effect with up to 50 millimeters expected today and tomorrow. So it's going to be a wet one. The high there is 19. Over in Quebec City, Quebec, it's rained throughout the day as well. And a rainfall warning is also in effect with upwards of 90 millimeters expected. So watch out for that. And there's also wind too. It's 50 kilometers per hour wind gusts, a high of 14. It's not a lovely day. Stay inside if you're you're in the area. When you get to 90 millimeters, at what point should you start saying centimeters? That's nine centimeters. That's that's a that's a third of a foot. I I know It, it is wild. I was reading this. Is that a typo? No. Okay. You know, this is happening throughout the day, over into the evening, potentially into tomorrow. So it's going to be very wet. It's going to be cool. It's going to be windy. It's just going to be a tough day. Now over to Toronto, Ontario. It's a mix of sunny cloud with possible rain this morning. The high there is 13. 
in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. It's rain off and on today. It's a wet area. It's wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour with a high of only nine. Over to Brandon, Manitoba. It's cloudy and a chance of flurries this morning, which will be coming a mix of sun and clouds. And the wind is strong there as well. Wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and the high is nine. Regina, Saskatchewan. Thankfully, it's sunny, no wind, and a high of 11. In Lethbridge, Alberta, it's mainly sunny, clouds rolling in later, but the high there is 22. Red Deer, Alberta, it's mainly cloudy, wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour, and a high of 18. Up in Whitehorse, Yukon, it's a mix of sun and clouds, and a high of only four. Kelowna, BC, you can always count on it. It's going to be beautiful. It's mainly sunny and a high of 18. And finally, in Vancouver, BC, it's a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 18. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. I'm sorry that I was mean about your bears. Coming up after the break, I'm going to ask you the daily poll question. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. I just want to remind you about our daily poll question, which you can find at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. We're asking you with COVID-19 cases on the rise, are you still keeping a steady supply of pandemic-related materials, pandemic supplies like wipes, masks, tests? Yes or no? Simple binary question for you today. Of course, if you want to do more than just vote on the poll, you can always reach out to us via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. You can give us phone calls, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. As mentioned, Twitter, at Accessible Media. But you can also find us on TikTok, at Accessible Media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram, at Accessible Media Inc., at Accessible Media Inc. So Twitter and TikTok, at Accessible Media. But if you're in those meta platforms, Facebook and Insta, at Accessible Media Inc. Coming up after the break, we'll catch up with Ramya Emuthan and Nazreen Abdel-Majid and say hello to Alex Smythe once again as well. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's catch up with Nazreen Abdelmajid and Ramya Emuthan. Hey, good morning, Nazreen. Good morning. And hello, Ramya. Morning, Dave. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, indeed. So, gang, as usual, my life is a ball of stress, particularly around my apartment, a particular point of stress. There's always something that needs a repair or a task that needs to be done or something that requires some level of handiness. Uh, the current issue is one that is beyond my capacity. It appears to be some kind of fan coil leak from the fourth floor that's tripping down to me on the second floor. So really wonderful stuff in my life perpetually. But there are are other things that happened, like a picture frame fell this week, so I've got to rehang that. And uh, I'm not so good at these handy activities. Ramya, how handy are you? Can you hang a picture? Can you use tools, change an air filter, assemble furniture? 
Uh, some of the above, but I, I am more interested in becoming more handy because I feel the same way. I'm like, oh man, there's nobody around and I should be able to do some of this stuff. And then also like woodworker, Jeff Thompson is a really great oh influence gosh. on us. He <laughs> comes on every month and he tells us about how he's putting in new wood floors and making a new deck. And I'm like, damn, I should be able to hang a picture at least. You know, <laughs> the, the hanging a picture for what it's worth is a very visual exercise for those of us yeah, in yeah, the, yeah. the blind, low vision community. That That's one that perhaps we can be forgiven. You can't really do that one by feel. Yeah, it's not necessarily like leveling. Leveling is, yeah. a, is a big challenge. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, iPhones have become more accessible. You can put up the leveler and voiceover will read it to you uh, just using your camera and things like that. So maybe we're running out of excuses. Yeah, it's Dave. true. We're definitely running out of excuses. Yeah. Nazreen, what about you? What's your level of handiness? Dave, I usually ask my dad to help me with handy stuff if I need something to be put together or fixed. But my proud moment this past weekend, my dad wasn't available. So I was like, you know what? I bought a chair and I was like, you know what? Let me try to put it together myself. I assembled it, Dave, and it was my proud moment. Yeah. I felt so good. Felt so good about it. Took a picture of it and I sent it to my dad. I was like, look, here you go. Be proud of me. <laughs> I remember I once had to put together this Ikea coffee table. It took me two days. But when ah. I was done, oh, my gosh, I felt like the the smartest, most capable, handy person in the yep. world. I think the reward factor so- when you get it done is awesome. Oh. Like it feels yeah. so good. It's tangible. It's totally tangible. Yes. I want to bring in Alex Smythe on this one. Alex, what's your level of handiness? You know, it really depends. There are certain areas that I'm far more competent with, like, you know, assembling IKEA furniture or anything where there's like clear directions. I can do that. I I can manage that. Just never ask me to try to make sure something's level or in the right spot, like hanging (laughs) the photos. I I can't do it. Um, I like my background. I I was basically putting that together. I I needed help. I, I couldn't like figure out the right positioning to to post up these like foam hexagons on the wall. Like I can help assemble and get it ready. I just can't do the physical like, okay, this is gonna go here. This is in the right spot. This is level, this is measured. Like uh, with the way my vision worked, everything looks off center to me. So, you know, if, <laughs> if I was left to hang an entire wall of photos, every single one would be crooked and off center and just in, in a horrible, horrible shape. I think they call that avant-garde. I think that style is referred <laughs> to as avant-garde. Exactly, uh, exactly. R- R- Ramya, we heard Nazreen tell her chair story. Do you have a similar story of a tangible thing that you maybe put together or assembled or did where you were like, yeah, that's right. I can use the screwdriver really well. I do. You know what the thing is? Okay, I love, I feel helpful. Like, I know that some people, they really don't feel helpful doing handy things, but I am helpful. I uh, can screw things. I can drill things. I I can, like, kind of, like, finesse my way around it but I do need the the help of somebody else reading instructions you know what I mean like I can't go from looking at a pile of stuff and saying okay I know where everything goes but my my chair that I'm sitting on the desk that I'm using right now a lot of the furniture around my house I did help put together Heck yeah so I feel good yeah I remember a couple of years ago my friend and his wife were expecting a baby and on Saturday I went over and I helped build the crib now I was not the actual like inserter or screwer or like or tightener my job was simply organizational support. So nice. I would hold like the screws and hold the washers and make sure nothing got mixed up. I would like make sure the instructions were like laid out in the proper direction. I would make sure we're like build, putting like the right piece into the right thing. It was just sort of a more supervisorial, supervisorial role, but it really worked for me. And, and that baby has not died in that crib. So I accomplished something. Success. Yeah, total success. success. 
<laughs> yeah, the the crib did not collapse under the weight of a of a nine pound baby. So you know, like <laughs> that's good. Strong man over here, uh, Nazreen. We wish you a wonderful weekend. Thank you for everything. Thank you, you too, Alex. You have a nice weekend as well. Yep. Take care, Dave. Ramya. I need a few more minutes of your time because you're going to tell me what's coming up on Kelly and Company this afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern time. That's right. So because it's Friday, we have our app update with John Beeler, and he's talking about uh, a couple of things, some good stuff on the the uh, the menu today, actually, not just scary, you know, security problems. So Apple showing Windows some love through their music, TV, and iCloud photos integration. So we're going to talk more about that. Uh, we're also talking about Vancouver providing more accessible voting options with some innovative technology involved as well. Uh, this is for the October 15th civic election, and Sylvie Fiquette's going to keep us posted on that. And we're talking about The Method. This is an audiobook that's trending. It's by James Patterson. It's topping the Audible original charts, and Ryan Huey says he's got some great reviews on it. So keep you posted on that, too. Very good. And your Uno segment yesterday was extremely informative. You gave a lot of good tips yeah, on oh, playing the you. game. Thank you. Did you hear me shout you out? Like, somebody said. <laughs> I they, did. They I did. don't play Uno. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. I'm, I don't mind being shouted out. Ramya, thank Thanks. you for this. Have a great weekend. You too, Dave. That's Rami Amuthan, the co-host of Kelly and Company, coming your way at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Coming your way next, it's Greg David. We're going to be discussing the importance of local TV and film production. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Just a couple of minutes ago, I was encouraging you to give us feedback on our show. We're always encouraging you to share your thoughts on our programming, but there are lots of ways that the community can shape the kind of work that AMI does. So let's learn about that with AMI communications specialist, Greg David. Hey, good morning, Greg. Dave, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Nice to chat with you. I feel like it's been a long, long time. So, Greg, today we're talking about the research panel. I've seen a couple ads popping up on social media for it. So how does the research panel figure into the way in which we craft content at AMI? It's a great question. I'm glad that you mentioned that the ads are out there. It means that, uh, that we're doing our jobs if the ads are out there and causes you to ask about it. So the AMI research panel, it's really a group of almost 2,000 people now that really shape the programming that we have on AMI, whether that's the podcast that we create, the television shows that we make, or or the AMI audio programs like Now with Dave Brown. Uh, it, it's really an integral part of, of how we do our jobs and, and create the content for our community. So this is a chance for people to really get involved here and share their thoughts from an even broader perspective. What does being a part of the research panel involve or entail for someone who wants to become part of it? Yeah, so I mean, from a practical point of view, uh, you know, you you give us your name and, and contact information, and then uh, we team you up with with uh, with a company um, that will uh, you know either give you an email survey or uh, online survey, or they'll even give you a phone call if you prefer it that way. But there really are three ways where you actually participate in. Uh, you know, we'll we'll show you the pilot episode of a brand new show and say, you know, what do you like about this? Uh, what do you not like about it? From a from a, a storytelling 
polling standpoint, do you feel as though members of the blind and partially sighted community are being fairly represented? Are we telling your story? And as we expand, we're, we're looking for uh, members of the disability community to join the panel as well uh, as we expand our programming to, to involve you know all parts of the disability community. So that's kind of the latest thing is that if you're a member of the disability community as well as the blind and partially sighted community, we'd love it if you joined the AMI research panel and helped us out. Yeah, it's a priority that we've had on the show for a couple of years now, trying to think about disability as some more of a, the pan-disability experience, right? Not just thinking about blind yeah. and low vision as the way we frame our conversations about disability, but including a multitude of disabilities in the perspectives that are that are shared on this show. Greg, I think it's it's self-evident. I, I think it's really laid out in what the research panel is, but but make the sales pitch here. Why should somebody participate? Uh, because you are directly going to influence what we put on our channels. I think that that's the message that I want to get across is, you know, I feel as though sometimes people just don't think that their names are heard when it comes to, you know, being critical or being even positive about the programming that, that they're being shown or, or being offered uh, is being offered to them. But I mean, we take this very seriously. These up to 2000 people have a voice and help in the direction of the programming that AMI provides. And I don't think I can stress that enough. Oh, and I forgot. Uh, the other uh, reason for participating is you do get paid to participate hey. if, uh, if you want. Yeah. But besides that, you really are helping shape what we make. <laughs> We're not in this for the money, but money is a nice money is a nice uh, little bonus there on the, on the back end. Uh, Greg, I think you did a nice job setting this up. I'm sure there's a few people whose ears have been perked by this. Where should they go if they're interested and they want to sign up? Yeah, you can go to our website, ami.ca slash slash research panel, all one word. So again, that's ami.ca slash research panel. And that's where you can get more information about the panel. And you can also sign up. And there's also a phone number there that you can call if you have more questions. Right on. And I'm sure if people use uh, those other points of, of feedback that we give regularly on the show, that'll trickle down to you guys as well if they do want to get involved too. So ami.ca slash research panel. But don't forget, there's all those other points of contact that we hit you with every single day. Hey, Greg, I want to pick up on something that you and I touched on so, so briefly last time we spoke. All week long, we've found ourselves talking about Canadian content and the role it plays in our consumption habits as consumers. But it has me thinking about the importance of local production to building a better TV and film industry in the country, or at least a more robust one. I've been thinking yeah. about this as my uh, friend's wife has been out in Newfoundland filming Hudson and Rex as well as a Lifetime movie. I think about the major WB shows that were filmed in Vancouver for years and years, or all the Hallmark and Lifetime movies that get made all across the country. For <laughs> years, you've been covering the industry as a journalist. So I can't think of anybody to offer a better perspective on this. So let's start here. How much of a Rolling Stone does that create for an industry in these locales to be building around these shows? Oh, it's huge. I mean, you mentioned Hudson and Rex off the top, and and I'll have a question for you in a second about that. But, uh, you know, when a show like Hudson and Rex, which is uh, created by Shaftesbury and, and airs on City TV here in Canada, and is sold in, it's available in hundreds of countries around the world, it just puts that spotlight on St. John's, Newfoundland, where they film it. Um, they make no bones about the fact that they're in St. John's, and they're always showing those locales. So yeah, it really puts a spotlight on the Canadian television industry, and St. John's in particular. And I 
I mean, that has a not only the effect of production companies or, or projects want to come and film in that area, but also the impact that tourism has. You know, people that want to go to St. John's and they want to do those set visits and say, oh, you know, Hudson and Rex was filmed in front of this building or they went here. Uh, you know, so it's an untold amount of money that gets brought into into, uh, you know, into the local community with a, with a show like Hudson and Rex. And my question for you is, you know, I don't know if you can reveal this or not, but what does your friend's wife do for Hudson and Rex? Uh, well, she's just brought she got brought on for sort of a, a spot appearance. Her name is uh, Katie Breyer. She's, a, she's okay. a great Canadian actor. Um, she currently played a role in The Boys. She played the uh, Deep's fiance on The Boys. And oh, she's, yeah. Yeah, she's a great, great actor. She's really emerging. She's really blowing up right now. So she had a bit of a, a spot a spot role. And then while she was out there, landed the Lifetime movie role that happened to be filming as well. So she's uh, just a phenomenal actor and a great writer, a producer as well. She's uh, she's really going places. And I, I'll give Katie Breyer all the love in the world for the work that she does out there in the, in, in the film industry and TV industry. You know, I think that you bring up a really good point about that as well. You know, um, the the industry, the acting industry tends to be pretty small here in Canada. And that's the other thing is that, you know, you mentioned Katie being on The Boys, you know, filmed in southern Ontario and then moving to Hudson and Rex out in St. John's and then being, a, you know, being part of this Lifetime movie now. And I think that that's a big thing. I think a show like Murdoch Mysteries especially uh, really builds that uh, kind of talent uh, because people uh, appear on an episode of Murdoch Mysteries and then, you know, that attracts people to the oh, let's get them for this show and let's get them for this show. So I'd say that Murdoch Mysteries and now Hudson and Rex are kind of the place where it's kind of the, um, you know, it really just adds to your IMDb page if you've been on those two Canadian shows and it opens up doors to other projects. Mm. Uh, Let's keep talking about trickle-down effects here because you mentioned how these projects and these emerging industries may have people flocking to those locations, but what about some of the more sustainable developmental elements? Is there a trickle down to say creating more TV and film schools in those places, more local production companies, more festivals potentially? Yeah, absolutely, and it's a great question. I mean, it, you know, that and that's happened in Toronto. The number of of local production companies that have have opened up just in the in the last five to seven years, and down in the Portlands, you know, setting aside area for massive studios to be built. But even on a smaller scale, you know, looking at the Ottawa Valley, not too far away from me, because of the Hallmark uh, Christmas movies that are being oh filmed gosh, in the yeah. area all the time, <laughs> there are there are these small like mom and pop production companies that are opening up as a result of that and people getting into the industry because you know as long as these hallmark movies continue to be filmed in the area there's going to be a need for costumes there's going to be a need for for camera grips and people with equipment so you know uh you know to 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 have that come into an area and then inspire others to open up the open up you know their own businesses to support that is great and then even the education side of things there's a tvo drama series that was filmed several years ago called um hard rock medical that filmed up in north bay and they actually signed up with canador college to uh, to help uh, you know students were actually learning to make TV on the set of the show so you could sign up for the the program at Canador and then you actually part of your your student uh, you know your student your studies where it took place there on the set of Hard Rock Medical oh so gosh. there you are learning hands-on while you're making a, a TV show and getting your education that's so practical that was one of the things that I loved about the radio experience uh, in radio school in Ontario where all yeah. the, all the radio schools have their own radio station you literally run a radio station to get your reps it's like that's how people learn to do these things 
Yeah, and it was the same when I took print journalism at Sheridan College in Oakville. In this, the first year of the program, we were writing the news stories for the school paper, and the second year, we were making the newspaper and editing it. And that's how you learn. And I think that's why you know Canada, especially, and I know they've got it. There's a school uh, in uh, in Sault Ste. Marie that's doing the same thing. It's just so great to have boots on the ground and have these kids learn, you know, hands-on while they're on a set of a television show or a, or a TV movie. Greg, we talked about some positives here, but I wonder if I can at least throw in one note of potential cynicism, because we know it can take years to build these industries and these locales. How quickly can they dry up? I remember Montreal was a real hub in the mid-2000s, like a huge, huge hub. The movie 300 was filmed there. They were making X-Men movies in Montreal. There was all kinds of stuff going on, but it feels like maybe that's softened. How quickly can this fall apart? Yeah, Montreal is definitely softened, but I wouldn't say that it's dead because there are international um, there are international production companies that are coming to to Montreal to film. Uh, there was a show on Bravo several years ago called Nineteen Two. There was a cop oh, yeah. drama that yeah, was yeah. filmed in, in yeah for four seasons. But most recently, uh, Dennis Leary comedy that aired on Fox for two seasons with Jay Baruchel in it called The Moody's filmed in Montreal. So you know the, it, it may have backed off a little bit, but it's by no means dead in the area and i think that you know as as toronto has really really grown and it's been harder and harder to find sound stages or or just the people to him to be employed on these projects they are looking elsewhere so places like hamilton and branford and london and windsor are starting to to gain more productions because they're away from toronto and that there are places to film but also they're heading eastward so you know places like um, like montreal and, and quebec city are picking up the slack as well and certainly nova scotia too so i think that you know know, as as the industry continues to grow and evolve in this country, it only just helps those smaller communities. Greg, 90 seconds left here on the clock. You mentioned the possibility of tourism related to shows. Have you ever visited a place specifically because a show was filmed there? I would be tempted to go to a place like Albuquerque because of the Breaking Bad connection. Yeah, that would be a great one. I haven't done one. I mean, because of my journalism background and writing for TV Guide Canada for so many years, I was actually visiting the sets of shows that I watched. So, you, <laughs> you know, Vikings. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. doing it as part of my job. But one that I would love to do would be The Handmaid's Tale, um, just because they filmed so much in southern Ontario around Cambridge and Brantford, Ontario and St. George, Ontario, all areas, communities that I grew up in. So I would love to, whenever they f- showed pictures of, of kind of behind the scenes of where they were filming, I'd like to, to, to maybe do The Handmaid's Tale um, and work that into uh, mm. a visit with my parents so they don't feel guilty. That's that's cool. Yeah, for me, I, I, I wouldn't mind going back out to British Columbia because uh, I have some family on the Sunshine Coast and famously the mm. Beachcombers was, uh, yes. was made up around there. And uh, there's a great brewery called the Persephone Brewery, which is named after the boat from the Beachcombers. So it's awesome. all these things. All these things are connected. Hey, Greg, thank you for making time and thank you for indulging my curiosity on this one. I'm super appreciative. Oh, no problem. I am happy to talk about behind the scenes of Canadian TV and the TV industry anytime you want, Dave. I mean, that's your background, right? So I love I love when we get a chance to get that expert expertise and insight. Greg, thank you for this. Have a wonderful weekend. You too. Thanks a lot, Dave. That's Greg David. He's a communications specialist for AMI, joining us from Chelsea, Quebec. That's all the time we have for the show today. It's all the time we have for the show this week. However, there are people who deserve some love who make the show come to air every single day. Alex Smythe, you hear him as a co-host and a producer. Brock Richardson, our sports reporter, our senior show producer, 
although away for the next couple of weeks. Congratulations, Andrika. Andrika Delanerol is the senior show producer. TV technical producer is Bruce Baclarian. We have producers Paul Daniel and Marianne Dion Jones who help us get this thing together. Daniel Penamondo, Eliza Rocco, Kingsley Juco. Special thanks to Paula Deneen, Andy Frank, and Nazreen Abdel Majid, and our tech services team, especially Ray Burkus, who got me out of a printer jam this week. And a big thanks to you for joining us all week long. We'll be back on Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.